Hey, Unnaturalists. I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome to this week's episode of Unnatural. Yes. And shout out to our British correspondent, Suze. She's the one who gave us the idea for Unnaturalists. So wanted to credit her for that. Yes, we love Suze. <laughs> so, Andy, today we are heading to beautiful Hawaii Ooh. for, but what happens here is not beautiful. Mm. Um, an unidentified man went on to strangle and murder five women between 1985 and 1986. He earned himself the nickname of the Honolulu Strangler or the Honolulu Rapist. A known serial killer was initially suspected of the crimes, but ultimately the five women killed have not received justice to this day. This is the story of the Honolulu Strangler. Five-year-old Vicki Purdy was in Hawaii with her husband, who was an Army helicopter pilot and was stationed there at the time. It's like in the early 80s, Hawaii and and Honolulu was really kind of booming with um, the advances in like telecommunications. Um, There's a lot of military bases there. Still are, yeah. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of tourists coming in and out every year. So it was a really busy place. People were constantly coming in and out just for a little background on how Hawaii was operating at the time. Um, on May 29th, 1985, she left her home to go out with some friends in Waikiki. By all accounts, they went out, they had a good time. She was dropped off at the Shorebird Hotel by a taxi driver around midnight where she planned to get her car and then go home. But unfortunately, she never made it home, and by the looks of things, she never even made it to her car. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Her husband, Gary, (laughs) paged her several times. Old tech alert. Old tech alert. Yep. (laughs) It's the 80s. No cell phones. You had a pager. Um, He had paged her several times with no response, um, you know, kind of after midnight, but... He figured that she was just having a good time and maybe she planned on getting home later than expected or, you know, she spent the night with her friends because things got a little rowdy. Um, But the next morning when he woke up, Vicky still hadn't made it home. So he frantically drove around Waikiki and began looking for her. And he did find her car in that hotel parking lot, but she was nowhere to be found. Her friends hadn't seen her since she got into the taxi. You know, they had they had assumed that she made it home. Um, but then Gary called the police. He reported her missing. And then, unfortunately, the following morning, her body was found discovered in an embankment at the Kihi Lagoon. And disclaimer for anybody in Hawaii that's listening, I tried to write down, like, phonetically how to pronounce some of these words and i know that i will probably butcher many of them and i really apologize for that let us know (laughs) yeah (laughs) please um 
Vicky was wearing the same yellow jumpsuit that she had worn when she was out with her friends. Her hands were bound behind her back. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. Now, her husband Gary thought perhaps that her death was related to her job because she worked at a video rental store that, you know, sold porno films and two women were stabbed to death at that store a year earlier. So maybe a customer who saw her and waited outside the store or something? I don't know. Or followed them? Yeah, unsure. And I tried to look into this stabbing death to see if the guy or persons or whoever... Yeah, and from what I could find, it it seems like those two murders were still unsolved. Mm. So it was kind of good thinking on Gary's part that, hey, this happened a year ago and... Might want to look into it, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like the initial assumption was more or less whoever killed Vicky could have frequented the store, knew her, recognized her, and was, you know, could have been related to the deaths earlier. But... um, Police kind of eventually dismissed that connection because she wasn't stabbed and the w- the women were left at the store. They weren't sexually assaulted. So, like, like the M.O. was different. Right. Yeah. Different traits for each one of these. Right. And then some six months later, on January 14th, 1986, 17-year-old Regina Sakamoto missed the bus on her way to school. She had called her boyfriend at about 7.15 that morning to tell him that she missed the bus and would probably be late to school, but she never arrived. Do we know if she was planning on walking, if she was going to get a ride or? No, and that's that was kind of the frustrating thing about this case because I really wanted to cover it, but there really wasn't a whole lot of information that I could find about you know, what happened, like, in detail, what happened to the victims, like, their hit, like, you know, their their lives, what happened right. that day. And here, too, the source material got a little tricky because a couple of them said that her body was found the next day and others said it was a couple weeks to a month later. Oh, wow. I, I I think it was a day or two later, but I'm not sure. But anyway, Regina's body was found bound. She had been sex- sexually assaulted and strangled, and she was in the Kihi Lagoon as well. And how long after, I think you said this, but how long after the first victim was this? Regina was in January, and um, Vicky was in May. Okay, so like seven months or so. Yeah, Yeah. six, seven months later. Okay. And Regina was still wearing the blue tank top and white sweatshirt she had been seen in the day she went missing, like by her family. Her, she was nude from the waist down, so like her pants and underwear were missing. From what I understand, she was, she did well in high school and she had planned on attending Hawaii Pacific University that following fall. And it's assumed that she was, oh, yeah, so she had planned on taking um, like a public bus closer to where her school was after she missed like the bus she she normally took. Yeah. And it's assumed that she was abducted from the bus stop and her murder and how she was found and where she was found was more or less like the light bulb for 
please. They realized there was a connection right yeah. away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And two weeks later, or two weeks after Regina went missing, a third victim, Denise Hughes, never showed up for work on January 30th. So it sounds like this person is getting bolder. I mean, just two weeks after the last one, they feel like they're not going to get caught here. Yeah. Denise was 21 years old. Um, she was a secretary for a telecommunication company, and she was also very active in her church. She commuted to work every day by public transportation. She took the bus, and her mom always worried about her taking the bus to and from school. So they had kind of talked that Denise, like, wouldn't show up to the bus too early. Like she knew the schedule. Right. So she wouldn't be like hanging around the bus stop for an extended period of time, kind of like alone. But this day she must have arrived earlier than usual or something happened because she never made it to work. And two days later on February 1st, Denise's body was found in the Moana Lua stream by three fishermen. Okay, so this was in a different location than the other two bodies. Yes, but it's very close. Was it? Like I, I talk like I'll talk about this a little later, but um all of these things happen in a in a very close proximity mm -hmm. to each other. Like I think um, I think I wrote it down here later in my notes, but this area of this stream is it's part of that lagoon where the other two were found. Okay. It was just like a mile or two away and she was wearing a blue dress and she, like the others, had her hands bound behind her back. She had been sexually assaulted and she was strangled. Now we have three murders with the same MO, the same area, all of the bodies have been found. They all went missing from, you know, a decently close area as well. So the Honolulu police, you know, had never seen anything like this before. Like they, they knew they had a serial killer on their hands or they were at least suspecting it at this point. But they might not have been quite prepared for it. Right. So, on February 5th, they established a task force. They got the FBI involved. They were talking with the Green River Task Force because around the same time, you know, over on the mainland, they were dealing with the Green River Killer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who might be a future episode of Unnatural. Probably. Anyway, so this task force had 27 people involved. So, um, there was this, like documentary episode thing that I watched about this and some like journalists at the time who were covering these stories constantly had to explain in their articles what a serial killer was, which I I thought was kind of surprising. I mean, I know Hawaii is not on the mainland, yeah. but I, I don't know. I figured like with all of the serial killers that were active, you know, on the mainland in the 70s and 80s, like they would have yeah. at least heard about it but who knows maybe 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 news doesn't travel well and it was maybe. a different culture there for so long i mean it still is That's and true. they yeah. just lived their lives a different way and obviously goals right they didn't have to deal with anything like we were dealing with uh, on the mainland yeah so like with the help of the fbi um they 
they compiled a um, you know a profile on the killer, and that was as follows. They said he was an opportunist who attacked women who were vulnerable at places like bus, bus stops, empty parking lots, dark areas, probably at night or very early in the morning. Um, he likely lives or works in the area of the attacks, which was going out as far as Sand Island or uh, Waip- Waip- Waipahu, I think is how you say it. Sure. Um, so, like I said, you know, all of this is in quite close proximity. And, uh, you know, so every, you know, officers, yeah. police, law enforcement are scrambling, trying to figure out. You know what to do they're creating a profile they're keeping their eyes out but before long the killer struck again The fourth victim's name was Luis Medeiros. Luis was 25 years old. She lived in Waipahu, but had gone to Kauai to um, meet with some of her extended family because her mother had recently passed away, and that's where they were going to read the will. And now she had been estranged from her family for quite a while. So I think they all thought that maybe, you know, getting together for this would bring them closer together. But Louise did have two young kids at home who were being taken care of by um, her boyfriend and his family. So she couldn't stay with her family for very long. And, you know, she kind of wanted to get back. Um, And on March 26th, 1986, she took a flight back to Oahu and told her boyfriend's family that she would take the bus home from the airport. Oh, so another incident at a bus stop? Mm Mm-hmm. So she did get off the plane. She left the airport, but she never made it home. And her body... How terrifying is it for women at bus stops? I mean, even to this day. Yeah. I've I've driven and been around bus stops in major U.S. cities, and especially at night, that is a scary place to be. It really is. Yeah. And for a woman who's alone, I can't imagine how how scared they are in those situations, even if nothing happens. Well, and especially today, because we like we have social media. You know, we we know about all of these serial killers and like. Yeah. Serial rapists and and all of that, that, um, you know, at the time, I'm sure it was still very scary, but you also weren't as aware, aware. as we are. It wasn't always in your face. Yeah. I guess the, the only advantage today is that you have this device with you at all times where, you know, you can call for help. You can go on live stream. You can, you know, FaceTime someone. Um So that's an advantage in a sense, but it certainly doesn't make it less scary. So her body was discovered near the Waikili stream by some road workers on April 2nd. Now, if you notice, the day, like they're not missing for very long before their bodies are discovered. And I think this is important. Right. So the killer isn't 
trying too hard to keep their bodies yeah hidden yeah but why would that be i mean in most cases it seems like they go out of their way to try and hide someone who they've murdered most serial killers anyway so maybe he wanted them to be found we'll get there hmm yeah 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 and and we'll get there so she was wearing the blouse that she had been seen wearing when she left to go to the airport. Um, but like all of the others, her lower body was unclothed. Her hands were bound behind her back. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted, just like all of the others. Now the police are like, all right, enough's enough. We, we got to do, do something. something. Yeah, jinx. <laughs> so they set up a sting operation they had some female police officers hanging out around bus stops near the lagoon the honolulu airport um you know kind of in this in this general area but just to see if they could get a glimpse of the guy yeah, or something. yeah. but unfortunately and maybe it's, i don't know i don't know i mean even those officers are brave as fuck yeah. because even though oh even God. though you know you have your fellow officers like out there watching your back like you still don't know what what could happen yeah you don't know what how this fucking guy operates what if he's like a smash and grab he grabs you throws you in his yeah car or van or whatever and takes off and like what if your fellow officers lose sight of you like yeah. they can't catch up what like oh, it's no certainly possible one thing i'm curious about is they were at bus stops. I'm surprised, or at least three of them were. I'm surprised there were no witnesses that came forward to any of these. Oh, we'll get there. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. You are getting ahead of yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, but the, the the stings were unsuccessful. Um, and then the fifth and last known victim of the Honolulu Strangler was 36-year-old Linda Pesky. According to Linda's roommate, she left home the morning of April 29th and never returned. So that day, Linda's roommate didn't expect her to be home when she usually was like linda said hey i'm gonna be home late because i have some late work meetings you know don't wait up for me whatever but the next morning yeah she realized that linda never came home so she called her work to see if everything was okay only to discover that linda didn't make it to work at all oh my god so she called the police to report her missing and this is this is where shit is really going to get weird. While they were searching for Linda, a guy named Howard Gay told police that a psychic told him that Linda's body could be found on Sand Island. Hmm. Now, I know I briefly mentioned Sand Island before, and it's it's this little island that's really heavy with like industrial work there's a port for the coast guard there it's really close to the lagoon and the stream and the airport um you know where all of the women had gone missing and whatnot and um i'll show you a map and i'll also put a map on the instagram so you can kind of get an idea of really just how relatively small this area is anyway um so 
Howard told the police that he went out to where the psychic told him Linda's body would be, and he found a pile of bones. So the police go out there, and um, it was later determined that these bones were pig bones. Oh, okay. But the police are still out there searching, and Howard here is, like, deliberately keeping them away from a certain area that was, like, around 80 yards or so away from where the pig bones were. Hmm. Seems kind of sus. Exactly. That's that's literally what I wrote next <laughs> in my notes. So it's kind of sus. And the police are like, no, man, you know, it's cool. We won't go over there. Like, we understand you already searched that area. Like, you got right. it. We We're trust fine. you. Yeah. You're not weird at all. Yeah. So eventually Howard leaves the area and the police, like, make a beeline for over there. I'm kind of confused on why they even avoided that area in the first place, but... Right, yeah. Uh, lesson number one, never trust anyone named Howard. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they, they search and they found Linda's body. She was nude. Her hands were tied behind her back. She, too, had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Okay. And the police are like, okay. Get this Howard guy in for questioning here. Not quite yet. Um, the police set up roadblocks in the area and started to question commuters on what they had seen that day. And some of them said that they had seen a light-colored van and a Caucasian or mixed-race man um, on the Nimitz Highway, which is a road that, like, runs through the area. And Linda's car was found on that highway, I guess. How many stories have we done where there's a light-colored van. I mean, it seems like that's people's go-to when the, maybe their memory isn't super clear that they just somehow always remember a light-colored van. We've had like four or five cases of this. Well, why are all of these killers driving light-colored vans? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, they should mix it up a little bit. Less, less yeah. conspicuous. So the police did arrest Howard on May 9th. 1986, about a week after Linda's body was found. And Andy, I know you and probably most of our listeners are going to be very shocked by what I'm about to say. Uh oh. Are you ready? I'm ready. There was no psychic. Yeah. Shocker. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking. He made it all mm -hmm. up. No psychic. Huh. Didn't exist. So what the hell was his excuse for being out there and knowing where the body was? Didn't have one. I mean, hello. Mm -hmm. But Howie over here did own and drive a cream colored van. Oh, okay. And he worked for one of the air freight companies at the airport. So, during his interrogation, it is reported that Howard didn't say a goddamn thing. He sat there with his arms folded and his head down pretty much the whole time. So, police are still trying to, you know, create a profile, gather evidence, piece together everything. And they 
did gather that none of the women really had any major defensive wounds. So they thought that maybe the killer was familiar to the women or he was able to, you know, lure them into his vehicle willingly and then he would attack them. Yeah. And they also determined that the killer had likely had a vasectomy because the um the semen samples that they collected like there wasn't a lot there so they figured either he had some sort of like like medical issue, issue erectile dysfunction something or other or he had a vasectomy Interesting. So um, police got in contact with Howard's ex-wife, and she had some pretty interesting things to say. I bet she did. Mm -hmm. She said that Howard was a very smooth talker. Hmm. And he also had a bondage kink. Hmm. Okay. So there's another bit of a connection. Yeah. And just kind of as a side note in that kind of documentary episode thing, it's called Breaking Homicide that I watched. Um, it was like the producers or the hosts or whatever did actually get in contact with his ex-wife. Like she didn't want to be involved. So they had like a private phone conversation. Yeah. Um, um, but the guy like kind of gave a recap of their conversation. And he said that she revealed that at, you know, Prior to the murders mm -hmm. and all of that, like he had had a vasectomy. Okay, so there's another thing that lines up. Yeah, and I am unsure if she revealed that to police at the time, but you know, other than saying he was a very smooth talker, um, she did say that he he had a bondage kink. He liked to tie her up with her hands behind her back to, you know, have sex and be intimate. Mm -hmm. And he Howard also had a girlfriend at the time who like. Of course he did. Yeah. She confirmed that, like, yes, he's a very smooth talker. He's very manipulative. He does have this bondage kink, you know, kind of is what it is. And the girlfriend also said that when they would get into arguments, he would leave the house and not come back for hours. And um, police kind of talking with this woman, they were able to kind of document Every time, like every day that they would have these arguments and when he would leave. Mm -hmm. And as it would happen, every time. They I'm, all lined up mm -hmm. to the killings. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. And Howard lived like 20 miles west of the Honolulu airport and about five miles away from where Luis's body was found. And the route he took to and from work usually passed by each location where the bodies were found. That can't be a coincidence. No, but he was interviewed pretty extensively by the police for around eight hours. He did take and fail a polygraph test. He had no solid alibi for his whereabouts on the nights of the murders. All of the victims were, I don't know if I mentioned this. I don't think I did. All of the vic victims were bound with a type of parachute rope that he had access to at his job. Hmm. So all of this sounds really compelling. Yeah. Right? Especially with the fact that he was at this, he led police to. Her body. Her yeah. body. Essentially, 
but they didn't they they couldn't charge him and they let him go because all of the evidence was circumstantial or what i mean yeah and i'm st- even even like by today's standards like we see we've seen plenty of cases where evidence is largely circumstantial yeah and but it's still compelling yeah and in my opinion this is like it still would hello it still would be enough to be admissible you think in court but maybe they didn't think yeah, so yeah i mean it's all circumstantial he fits the profile yeah oh that's frustrating yeah and well yeah cuz like we've mentioned you know like killers try to insert themselves into the investigation which is exactly and, what he did yeah and even though he was trying to keep them away from Linda's actual body like he still led them to the area out there yeah I wonder if maybe too much time was passing and her body hadn't been found yet and maybe that was something that really got him going too because all of the other girl like you know all of them had been found relatively quickly yeah I wonder did he get I mean did the killer you think get off on when they were found like is that something that was just stimulating to them or pleasing i what do you think i don't know i mean i think so i think he wanted he wanted the bodies to be found because he didn't try to hide them very well just for his own and i I think and i think yeah i think somewhere in the source material that i was reading like there was or like and then even in that documentary i think i think someone you know had mentioned that that seemed likely that like he wanted them to be found yeah it was part of his fetish and part of the reason why he was killing them to begin with who knows yeah it's pretty it's pretty clear i mean the police the police were on to howard but it was just unfortunate because they didn't have they didn't have enough evidence for whatever reason at the time to arrest and charge him But in that um, episode that I watched, the lead prosecutor and homicide detective at the time who are now retired, they did say that they believe that if DNA had been then what it is today, they could have gotten a sample from Howard and it would have been a match and, you know, case case closed. closed. Yeah. But, you know, after he was arrested and let go, I think it was a month or two after he was let go, um, the killing stopped. Hmm. Howard left Hawaii and went back to California where his ex-wife and children lived. And allegedly sometime after returning to California, one of Howard's sons died pretty tragically. He was on the side of the road um, changing a tire on his car and he was hit by another car. Oh my God. Yeah. And apparently this rocked Howard's, world and he became a born again christian of course he did yeah and as far as i could tell you know no killings of a similar nature happened where he was and you know with like btk he stopped killing for a long time so like this kind of stuff has happened and if he became a born again christian you know um I don't. Yeah, it's rare for them to stop killing, but it does happen in certain cases. Yeah, and I don't think that there's many people 
who would argue that Howard wasn't the one responsible, but. Well, especially if the killing stopped in Hawaii. Yeah. Well, and I said in the beginning, another serial killer was kind of suspected when he was named and found out. His name is Eugene Barrett. Um, Might do an episode on him later, but he was very loosely suspected, but they're like the MO was different. It just happened to be right. that like the different characteristics, different characteristics, the, the killings like were just happening at the same time in right. similar areas. So um, it, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that the two were unrelated, but I just felt like that was worth mentioning. Um, now, Howard was born January four or January first, nineteen forty three, and he died November second, two thousand three, in Inglewood, California. So, I mean, like I said, there's been no other suspects. Technically, these five young women haven't received justice. They, you know, their cases are still technically unsolved but like i said i don't think there are very many who could argue that howard is not responsible the people investigating this think howard's responsible well it's it's one thing for the families to know that it was him but to get that validation kind of would bring you closure Mm -hmm. i don't know if there's a way for them to reevaluate some of that dna evidence from all those years ago or not i'm guessing they probably would have if they could have yeah i would assume so i don't like I, I didn't go that deep into it. Like, there's not a whole lot of buzz on mm-hmm. the internet, um, you know, of like anything happening with the case or, you know, whatever. I mean, uh, Howard died right. almost 20 years ago. Yeah. So sad. Sad for those women and their families. It is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So that is, that concludes the story of the Honolulu Strangler. Keep your guard up at bus stops. Yeah. And keep your guard up everywhere. It's terrifying to be alive. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's terrifying <laughs> to be alive. Uh, you know what else is, uh, you know what's not terrifying? Heading over to our social media. Yeah. Come hang out with us on Twitter, Unnatural the Pod, Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast. We have a Facebook page, Unnatural, a true crime podcast. You can send us a Gmail, Unnatural the Podcast at gmail.com. Um, we also have a Patreon page that is patreon.com slash unnatural the pod. And as always, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, and share us with your friends. What are we doing next week? Next week, Emily, we are going down a road that we really haven't gone down before. And it's about a guy who vanished in upstate New York and no trace of him was ever found. That case coming your way next week. Sounds like a good plan. In the meantime, make good choices. And don't go to bus stops. I mean, don't get got. Talk to you next week. (laughs) See ya. Bye. part of his fetish and part of the reason why he was killing them to begin with who knows yeah 
Oh, speaking of fetishes, I have a fucking side story for you. 